what's your method of taxation? Because in the current system, um, we tax income, which I think is grossly unfair because the working and much of the middle class live on their income, whereas the rich live on their wealth. They don't really care that much about income because they have so much capital and it kind of grows by itself in many respects that they can live off that. And they're not hand to mouth if their income is, uh, is taxed. But if you've got a, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40% income tax on people who don't have that kind of money and really, really need their paychecks, then um, you are essentially taxing the way that people live and you're not hitting where the real tax base, which is in the wealth of the super of the, of the elites. Hello and welcome. I'm Shiza, your host of Rain Vision Business and co-founder of UpEffect. If you're new to our work, over the last five years, we've loved amplifying and supporting business models that prioritize equity, conservation, and economic empowerment. And now we're advancing this work through our Reinvision Business Podcast. This series will highlight the emerging need for responsible trade that uplifts communities frequently left behind. In each episode, we'll invite thought leaders to deconstruct our current systems, and with their help, we'll spotlight models that are re-envisioning business. Together, we'll unearth a blueprint for an economy redesign. This is the second part to an introduction to Islamic economics with Umar Nasser. He shares his views on why capitalism and socialism don't work and why he believes the solution to wealth inequalities and global poverty lies within the Islamic economic model. If you missed the first part, you may want to give it a listen. Umar explains how capitalism, socialism and the banking sector operate and how they impact our day-to-day lives. It sounds like, you know, obviously much of socialism is driven by good intentions and there there is a level of morality there which is missing from most of capitalism. And there's all kinds of new movements around conscious capitalism and looking at um, the triple bottom line where you're focusing on profit, planet and purpose with your within your business structures. But, you know, something still seems to be missing in terms of how they will practically pan out in a from a mechanism perspective. So I, I'd be interested to hear from you because based on what I'm hearing, what you're saying is capitalism doesn't work, socialism doesn't work. So what would you propose would be or should be the alternative and what what do you think will work? Um, so I think there are two aspects to this on the on the wider scale, which is what are the policy things that we need to do and also what are the moral and cultural things that we need to do? Uh, the moral and cultural thing, things I think are very important because even if you have very um, good policies, even if you have perfect policy making and you can set up a bit of a virtuous circle, if fundamentally the people that are running the system are still, let's say, use a dramatic word moral, or phrase, mor- morally corrupt, if they are still don't really have the interests of um, the most vulnerable at heart, if they're still not really selfless, if they're in politics for themselves or for status or for wealth, then they have every incentive to change those policies. So you can put a bunch of great policies in place, but what is actually sustaining that is the humans that are in charge of those policies. And what you need to change there is you need to attack it from the the moral and cultural point of view as well. Um, So how do you produce a moral revolution in the world? How do you change people's um, views? Uh, Or rather, how do you change their actions and their behaviors? 
I think is ultimately going to be down to their worldviews. What worldviews do they hold? What do they think? Why are we here? Do they think that they're accountable for their actions? Do they think there's any intrinsic good to be helping others? Um, you know, as a, from a religious perspective, when you are religious in a, in what I would argue is the, the true sense, you love your creator and therefore you naturally love your creation. You know, even if you've never met them before in the same way that if you have a best friend and they have a kid, even if you've met that kid only once or twice, you have an inherent much greater love for them than you would for some, some, someone's kid that you just met off the street. Even if that kid you may have met once or twice as well, but because it's your friend's kid, you have a special attachment to them. In the same way, when you have a, a genuine, when you cultivate a genuine relationship with the creator, you have a special attachment and a, a motivation to help their creation. And also on the, on the flip side of things, a slightly harsher edge is religion says you are charged with um, being accountable for your actions and you'll be punished in some form if, uh, or you may be punished in some form if you don't take care of your responsibility to other people properly and you will have a, a greater relationship and you have a greater relationship of love with God um, if you do do those things. So religion, I think, is, the, is, a, is a fantastic driving force towards uh, morality not to say that there aren't that there are no immoral religious people um, or that religious history is not um, unchecked but I think if religion is applied as as it was originally taught and um, and and followed properly because you can have a text but it's about whether people follow it if they follow it properly then you can produce um, great changes in the world um, so that's the moral and cultural perspective and then in terms of what kinds of things need to change from the policy perspectives, from the structure of our economic system, um, we've seen that, I think, I've tried to argue that an interest-based system uh, exacerbates inequalities naturally. So let's say you get rid of that. Okay, you get rid of interest. You don't have interest-bearing loans. Then how do you expand business? How, does, how do things work? Well, essentially, it'll be through equity stakes. It'll be through partnership. Um, partnerships with between banks and businesses or between the people and businesses. Um, so what that'll mean is that you're financed, but the people who finance you take a stake in your business and therefore have more motivation really to, to be involved with your business. And they'll share the risk. If uh, the business doesn't do that well, then they lose some of their money um, or all of their money, right? So what that means is that your financier class is intrinsically linked to the real economy. Because at the moment we have a financial industry, we have the financial world, what they call the financial economy, and you have the real economy. And for some reason, it's just accepted that these things are often very, very different. Financial economy is still doing very well, even though many people are becoming extremely unemployed and are having very difficult times. And it's always been the case that the financial world is, is very much disconnected from your real economy. But if you can intrinsically tie financing to your real economy, saying that your financiers will only make money if something makes money in the real economy, oof, then you've changed the whole system. Then you're saying actually that um, real that growth in the financial world is based upon real growth in the real economy. So that's something that uh, traditionally has been done in the Islamic world, is um, uh, especially in, in, further back in the past than our current world, um, is basing things much more on equity, on having risk sharing and profit sharing. Um, so that's one major aspect that you can change in your financial system. Another is what's your method of taxation? Because in the current system, um, we tax income, which I think is grossly unfair because 
the working and much of the middle class live on their income, whereas the rich live on their wealth. They don't really care that much about income because they have so much capital and it kind of grows by itself in many respects that they can live off that. And they're not hand to mouth if their income is uh, is taxed. But if you've got a, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 percent income tax on people who don't have that kind of money and really, really need their paychecks, then um, you are essentially taxing the way that people live and you're not hitting where the real tax base, which is in the wealth of the super of the of the elites. So let's say we reverse that. Let's say we dramatically reduce income taxes or even eliminate them and you start proper wealth taxes. And it can be a marginal wealth tax. It can be if you have wealth over a certain level, then we're going to tax you on that. Um, then you have, uh, again, you've changed the game because you're taking the, the money from the people at the top. And if you have good tax policies, which distribute those amongst the poor, and you put it into social programs, into infrastructure projects, into uh, you know things that really help people, then you can um, you know really change the game in terms of taxation and really work to reduce inequalities. Um, Do you think the economy could handle us doing a radical switch towards eliminating income tax and switching to wealth taxes? I don't know. I think that needs to be modelled, to be honest. Um, uh, my own view is I think that should, we should be much less reliant on income taxes and much more reliant on wealth taxes um, for that basic fact, because that's where the money is and the people and it and it hurts people at the bottom of the rung much more. Um, so how you do that has to be trial, trial, t- tried and tested in, in policy itself. But I think the principle, in my view, is sound. Um, so you should aim towards that. Um, and if if you have a marginal wealth tax as well, it also gives an incentive for people to not accumulate too much wealth. And the only way that if you have a, you know, you don't allow people to siphon off wealth to tax havens, the way that they're going to be able to use their wealth and not just let it accumulate is to reinvest it back into society and back into genuine um, business in the in the real economy. And that itself will, will will do a lot of the government's job for it. It will produce a lot of growth. From a, a tax angle, I think that makes complete sense. I mean, it's it's just shocking that it's just never been implemented in our Western economic systems. I'm, I'm just curious to understand why that hasn't been proposed up until, you know, recently we're seeing so much talk around wealth, wealth taxes. Why do you think it's never been trialed before? outside of the Islamic economy. Yeah, it's important to say, I didn't just make up that wealth tax thing. That's uh, called Zagat and it's an Islamic, um, <laughs> it's a core <laughs> tenant of Islamic economics. Uh, and obviously getting rid of interest is um, uh, something that's a major part of Islamic economics. And maybe we can touch on a few other aspects later. But um, why has it not been trialed? I think the the, the, the reason is because the people um, who are producing the policy, it's not there in, in their interest, basically. Um, it's not in people's, in, it's not for the super wealthy's interest from a materialistic point of view to lose their money. Um, and since they fund all the think tanks, which produce your economic policy, since they often have direct financing of political or, or political actors through lobbying, uh, and they also have kind of cognitive capture through their think tanks and through universities, etc., of the landscape They've they've been against it, and they can always make up slightly uh, invented models of economics and say, well, this is why this would be bad. Um, and everything it's it's interesting. Everything tends to be bad, which um, doesn't favor them, and everything that favors them 
tends to be actually really makes makes a lot of sense economically. Um, so I think right. that's on, on a very simple level. That's that's why we haven't seen those things. And it's only in recent years with the massive civil unrest after the 2008 crash and the austerity policies that we've talk, have talk about wealth taxes. And a lot of it came out of Piketty, French economist Thomas Piketty wrote that book, Capital in the 21st Century. And he said what I was saying in terms of, um, you know, that the history of capitalism is basically a history of increasing wealth inequality. And that's only been changed through massive state intervention, plus minus massive destruction of wealth. So the world wars, it went down. And then after the world wars, you obviously had better governments than we have now. You had a recognition that we need to do things for the poor who have just, you know, so many of them have died in the war. So we're going to have massive state intervention. We're going to really regulate things well. We're going to try and run our economy responsibly. They did that for one or two decades. But even in the 60s, you had then the elites having their own intellectuals saying we need to completely change things and we need to... Um, uh, essentially rig the system in favor of the rich which is what neoliberalism is um so so then you get basically massive wealth inequalities exploding again so that's your that's what your that's what capitalism is tending towards that's its natural inclination is to increase wealth inequalities the 20th century bears that out so we need to have policies that that make a system tend towards equality rather than towards inequality and the the things i just mentioned you know stopping interest and um having a marginal wealth tax are two policies which I think would really help. And Piketty himself obviously famously said, I think we need a wealth tax. And then members of our team actually emailed him saying, um, you know, this is like an age-old, 1,400-year-old Islamic thing. <laughs> and he was like, oh, very interesting, send me more. Um, and uh, he did read some more. And uh, and then he put some, he quoted one of our writers actually in his uh, latest book. And um, But to put it mildly, I think he may not have appreciated fully what we were saying so a response is being prepared <laughs> okay <laughs> interesting and obviously you know he he came to his own conclusion completely independent of amazing what work. you yeah. know is, yeah yeah and of what islam advocates within its islamic economic model which is more proof of you know what what is being proposed under this economic system so it, it'll be interesting to hear more about, so you've mentioned shareholding, you've mentioned risk sharing, you've mentioned uh, wealth taxes. What else um, uh, embodies the concept of Islamic an, an Islamic economic system? And how exactly would a business operating within that economy work to uplift marginalized groups and reduce wealth inequalities, so reverse the damage that has been done by today's capitalism? Well, I think it's not necessarily just what would those companies do as if like through charitable drives that they would work. But actually, if you change the structure of your economy such that you have um, a wider distribution of wealth and that you have lots of smaller businesses, which are much more locally owned and, you know, locally driven and that they're zebras, um, zebras <laughs> um, <laughs> and you have... Uh, you know, their, their, their structures or their dividends are going towards much more normal people rather than a, a super elite that has all the shareholdings in all the different country co companies. Um, then that itself means that more people are going to be better off. Um, and therefore they're going to be, um, economic win winners rather than an increasingly small number of winners and an increasingly large number of losers. In fact, actually just on that point, I don't think the way that we have, 
shareholders is the ideal system. But even in even in our system, I was having a look at the um, office, the ONS stats on this recently, on how many how much of the population are shareholders. And in the 60s, it was like 65% of the population were shareholders. And now it's down to 13%. And it was in the 70s that you see a massive drop, uh, 70s and 80s. And that's exactly when all the kind of neoliberal reforms came in. So even as a gross measure, it's very interesting that even on this gross measure, you have a massive reduction of who um, you know, has who is a shareholder in your society, which I think is a is a reasonable proxy of who is basically richer, who is who is um, getting money not just from their paycheck, and obviously even within that thirteen percent, it'll probably be a very very tiny sliver of that that actually owns you know numerically or in terms of value most of the shares in your in your world. But I think if you, as I was saying, if you have these um, policies, if you have greater distribution of wealth through your zakat, through your wealth taxes. If you have um, financing that is much more equity driven, then you're not going to have massive, massive companies that are artificially boosted that can outcompete everyone through monopolization. Uh, you're going to have a greater level of smaller businesses, which are much more jointly owned by higher numbers of people. And that itself naturally is going to increase the wealth in your society. Does that make sense? Do you buy that or not? <laughs> I do. I do. Uh, I mean, based on my understanding, I believe Islamic economics goes a bit deeper into the role that businesses play. I feel like the responsibility of a business owner is also to ensure that the people that it's employing are protected, whether it's making sure that their income is delivered by the time that their sweat dries up. I mean, that there's a whole saying around that within Islam, mm. making sure people are paid on time, they are paid well, they are offered the right training and education so that they're empowered to come out of their um, whatever their condition is so that they can learn or be equipped to stand on their own two feet and become financially independent. And I think that ultimately drives what Islamic economics has to offer in terms of helping marginalized groups become financially independent and helping them become leaders within society. But we can only do that when businesses create the means, whether it's through resources or it's through financing. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts on whether you think that that is, that is also a part of Islamic economics and what more can we see from businesses beyond, you know, looking at shareholding, moving away from interest-based financing um, and moving more towards fair trade um, practices? Those are, those are great points. I'm glad you raised them actually, because I wasn't, yeah, I was out at the time overlooking them actually. Um, and it occurred to me when you said that, you know, if you take, let's take the example of early Islam, and I think this captures the spirit of it quite well. In early Islam, you had the Muslims that were hugely persecuted through various wars. Um, and the Meccans were following them literally 200 miles north up to Medina and were uh, waging wars against them then. And eventually the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, was permitted in our view by God to actually respond and fight those defensive wars. Now in those wars, prisoners of wars were taken. Just in, in the current world, we have prisoners of war. And today they're put into, you know, camps with often shocking conditions. Um, but in but obviously in olden times, they didn't have those kind of, you know, buildings where they could keep people. So they were distributed amongst ordinary people, prisoners of war, uh, as long as the war was going on. 
uh, in the Islamic perspective or in the Islamic history. So as long as the wars were going on, they were permitted to to keep those prisoners of wars because if you let them go, they'd go back and join their armies and then kill your brother and your sister. So that wasn't a good idea. But Islam gave so many regulations that it's just amazing in terms of how to treat them. So these are people that literally come out of their way, often hundreds of miles to come and kill you. And the Quranic teachings were... Um, you have to treat them basically as you treat yourself and your own family. Feed them as you feed yourself. Clothe them as you clothe yourself. And one of the primary ways, and it says that you have to offer them their free, you have to allow them to pay their way to, to freedom. Or you can just just let them go. Just just let them go. If their family comes and they want to ransom them, you can do that as well. You can let them go of your own accord. But if none of those routes are available, you don't necessarily want to let them go because you're very poor yourself. And there's no one that's come to get them ransomed then they still have the right to uh, get their freedom. And the way that Islam said they'd do it is they had to basically put some, um, they had to earn it through showcasing their skills and through helping the society around them. So for instance, if they could read, let's say, they would have to teach some children to read and improve the literacy, right? And then that would be their kind of debt for coming to murder your compatriots. Be like, okay, well, that you've paid off your debt, you're now free to go. Um, so it's amazing what Islam did is that even people that were, you know, very objectively your enemies, it said, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to treat you very well and we're going to feed you and clothe you like we feed and clothe ourselves. And, um, if you, uh, if the route is taken that they need to earn their freedom, it'll be by doing something which is socially beneficial by working in society and then they'll get their freedom and they'll be also given some money generally, some capital, to, to kind of go their own way as well. Um, so I think that, that you know, it's a very extreme case, but it sums up a lot of the spirit of Islam, which is about you need, you have a responsibility to others. You know, the prophet said, I think he said, everyone is a, is a shepherd. You know, everyone has people under their um, uh, responsibility. And all of the things that we have, our wealth, our intellectual capacities, our time, all of these are trusts from God. That's the essential Islamic teaching. Uh, in respect to economics is all of your resources of a nation and on an individual level are trusts from God and you'll be judged according to how you use them. So you need to use them in a way that benefits as many people as possible and you use it in a responsible way. Um, so I think that kind of goes back to how these actual companies will act in individually. Um, if you have that at the forefront of your mind and you're thinking, you know, um, I'm going to be judged for this, but also I'm inspired by love for my creator to help his creation. And, you know, even if you don't necessarily subscribe to those views, there are many people who just have a, a good level of baseline morality. If that is kind of accentuated from them and that you have a culture which um, lays heavy stress upon that, then the individual decisions that, that businesses make are going to be much, much better. Um, so I think, I don't know if that, I think that kind of, uh, it speaks to what you are asking. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, a lot of people may be listening to this and they may not subscribe to the Islamic faith or to any faith for that matter. Do you think Islamic economics is a model that could work for just, you know, is it only available to Muslims or is it something that could be adopted on a global level? Um, I would say in many respects, they have adopted parts of Islamic economics without quite realizing it. So the big revolution of the you know, post-war economy was that you had um, the state, Britain in many respects was a pioneer of this, 
you know, the state saying, okay, we're going to try and provide for your basic needs, where the state is now taking the responsibility upon itself to make sure people have clothing, shelter, that they have uh, health, that they have education. And you had a big expansion of these things, and it came to define the modern spirit of British politics, often fought against by um, others. <laughs> um, so that is something which uh, which we see as a great um, a great blessing of the modern age is that is the birth of the so called welfare state and basically the state saying okay we're going to collectively take care of take care of each other. This was something which Islam put into practice you know fourteen hundred years ago, and the best example of this the best earliest example of this was Hazrat Umar saying Caliph uh, may Allah be pleased with him uh, because he very very specifically did a massive census of uh, Medina. He found out who people were, what were their requirements, and how were they being met? Does everyone have food? Does everyone have clothing? Does everyone have shelter, etc.? Um, and there's a famous story, which I'm sure you know, of how he was essentially roaming the streets at night uh, undercover to kind of find out how how things were and what the state of his, uh, of his uh, nation was. And that itself shows the moral caliber of him. He was doing it undercover so that people wouldn't really be able to see him. And he heard... And he, um, he would go up to them and help them, but still not um, allow them to identify him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and in this particular instance, he he heard this uh, woman um, crying out and saying, you know, uh, oh, oh God, I, th I think she said, oh God, curse Umar. And he was like, why? You know, and he and he went to her and tried to find out. And, he's, and, he, and she said not knowing who he is, um, well, look look at the state that he's left me in. And so he went back and he kind of got supplies for her and provisions for her. Um, and while he was coming back, his uh, servant said, you know, can I, or one of his assistants said, can I, can I carry that for you? And he said, you can carry this now, but who will carry my burden on the, on the day of resurrection? Right, so that shows the effect that your worldview and that religion in particular, and Islam in particular, can have on someone. Um, is that sense of responsibility in your leaders and also that the policies are about providing for people and meeting their basic needs. And in fact, he actually had, he pioneered even essentially a form of UBI. It wasn't completely universal, but I think it was for like pregnant mothers, for um, people that were starting out after puberty and trying to get jobs. He would provide them with capital. And we have an article on this on our website, rationalreligion.co.uk. If you type in even Umar, um, you'll get the article. I think it's called The Forgotten Economic Revolution of Hazrat Umar. And it goes Maybe into detail of all of these. Maybe we can link it. We can link it in the show notes. Yes, yes. And, and it goes into detail about, you know, how the early Islamic state pioneered lots of these things. Um, and this isn't a coincidence. The Holy Quran specifically says, it says basically that with the birth of prophethood, people were charged to take care of each other and provide for food, water, shelter and clothing. And education is also involved in the Arabic of it. Um, so it said that these four to five things need to be provided for and that this is a responsibility of your leaders. So the Muslims did this. Um, and Was that just so for Muslims? How, right. So you're saying, you know, is this something only Muslims could do? Well, everything I've said could be adopted by people of no faith or of, uh, or of different faiths. These are policy recommendations that we're making. You know, change your um, 
don't have an interest-based system, implement marginal wealth taxes. And there are other things that Islam says it has, you know, uh, an emphasis on charity. It has uh, about a 20% royalty on mineral resources. It really advocates for the circulation of wealth. So there are other things as well. But none of these things do I have to say, you know, I believe in one God and that the Prophet Muhammad is his messenger per se. You know, there's nothing stopping others from adopting these things. And as I've said, in many cases, they have independently found that these things are things that we should be doing, like having a welfare state that takes care of each other, that takes care of, you know, their population, like um, saying maybe we should have a, have, a, have a wealth taxes. So this is, I think, maybe probably the angle that you're coming from in terms of re-envisioning business is you're trying to find ideas that, you know, everyone can can have. Um, and everyone can implement. And I think I think Islamic economics is a rich source of that because these are policies anyone can implement. You don't have to be Muslim. It applies equally well for Muslims and non-Muslims. Um, and I think people should, uh, should look into it because they could be quite well pleased with what they find. Thank you, Omar. Is there anything that you would like to add? I think um, a common question that comes to my mind that I often get asked about is, is Islamic economics a socialist model or is it a capitalist model? Um, I'd, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts on that are. Uh, it combines the um, best parts of both and it uh, rejects the worst parts of both. So the best parts of socialism is about, um, as I say, socialist is a little bit of an ill-defined concept, but it, it let's take communism as, as, as an extreme example of socialism. It, said, it agrees with the idea that we need to take care of everybody, that we need to um, have people's basic needs met, which is something we don't have in this country. There are still people on the streets. There are still people who are extremely poor here. Um, in America, for instance, they don't even have health care for, for so many people. So that's something which you know people haven't even reached the basic levels of provision. So it, it takes that aspect of socialism um, and says, yes, we need to do that. But it also allows individualistic enterprise. It allows people to really excel if they have capacity to, and it rewards them for that. It doesn't it doesn't demonize profit, but it says that there should be a limit, and you should have policies that make sure that capital doesn't concentrate. Because when your capital concentrates, when money concentrates, you then have concentration of power, and those powerful people will rig the system. So I think it, it's a, it's a blend of the two, without their uh, problems, but with their with their merits. I'd like to hear from you because you're someone who's, you know, pioneer in your own business and you've been very active in kind of, um, uh, you know, advocating for better systems. What's your feeling of, you know, how much is there an appetite out there to really change things on a systemic level um, rather than on, I don't know, maybe more, more smaller scale things? Do people recognize that a lot of these issues may be systemic and have they put their finger on what the root causes may be? Um, what I've seen with, within the social enterprise community and just the wider circles that I, um, that I try and learn from, or I try and observe, there is no doubt that everyone has recognized within that group that there is a larger system, systemic problem, problem that is affecting many areas of the way we live our lives, um, whether it's the world of business, whether it's the world of fashion. Um, I mean, we, we see fashion so heavily um, capitalized and, you know, the fast fashion industry, the way it exists, for instance, is just absolutely horrendous um that's just one example then we see the world of um 
uh, we, we see the world of conservation. So the impact that businesses have on the environment and the need for, um, you know, better systems in place to actually protect our lands, protect in, in, indigenous groups um, and marginalized groups that have always kind of protected um, those areas, but they're actively being pushed away. Every area um, of of our systems has been um, exploited in some way. And I feel like, you know, people are finally rising up to the challenges that exist with our current economic system. And that's one of the reasons why I, I decided to start this podcast, because there's so many people out there working on a variety of different concepts and thought processes around how we can re shape the economy and rebuild the way we do business. But a lot of those solutions are very fragmented. A lot of people are still trying to figure out what a world without capitalism look, looks like. Um, and then they will often lead, lean towards socialism because that's the only alternative that they know of. But then once they dig into socialism, they realize actually socialism, you know, on a practical level won't really work. So then they go back to capitalism and it's just this back to and fro um, uh, situation that they're always kind of stuck in a loop of. And what they're really looking for is is a new model. And every time I see those conversations, I participate in those um, conversations, I often think that if only they understood the power of Islamic economics and what that model has to offer to the world, even if you don't subscribe to the Islamic faith, there are so many principles that are focused on making sure that individuals can acquire an income, can generate wealth, but at the same time, it's never at the expense of one another because your ultimate goal within this world should be to protect your sisters, your brothers, whether that's the stranger that's living next door or it's someone that's living across the world. We all need to be mindful of everyone that exists and walks the same walks on the same land as us and how we can be mindful of protecting them in our transactions and our day-to-day -day dealings and it's yeah it's just it's just such a it makes such a frequent occurrence in all of my conversations and um it's it's just a shame that you know we we don't we on the flip side i i kind of understand that there aren't enough working examples um, that we can present to them in the current modern world. I think that one of the big problems that exist is that we have Muslim countries that claim to practice Islamic economics, but they're not actually, um, they're not uh, implementing the, the, the system in the way that Islam had originally proposed. And if we look to them for um, inspiration, we're, we're of course going to be let down. We're, we're not going to be inspired by those models. And so, you know, the, the non-Muslim world says, okay, so where, where do we turn to? What models should we look towards to find that inspiration? Because there is no working example. So I guess that's one of the challenges that exists within the Islamic economy. And so I would like to see more, um, more robust examples and businesses coming out of the, the the new generation that's you know they they are there have been a lot of businesses that are looking to transform the way Islam, um, islamic finance for instance works as an industry how um, businesses can cater to the non-muslim market because a lot of uh is islamic based businesses have catered to muslim audiences specifically when really businesses mm. should cater to every audience um and they should their services should be made available to everyone 
unless of course you're you're targeting a very kind of you've got a very niche offering but really you shouldn't prohibit um specific segments of society from accessing your services because those services should be for the good of humanity and for the good of society um and therefore yeah. should be available to everyone so i think i'd like to see more examples um of businesses but in in answer to your question yes there there is um a huge appetite for um a new system that caters to the challenges that a lot of people have identified and um alleviates the challenges that people are experiencing on a day-to-day basis yeah i think those are great points that you made about um that there's no example because that's who you look at really isn't there on an on an individual level, if you, um, let's say you really agree with the faith, but you know people who subscribe to that faith, but actually don't have the moral character, which is reflective of it, it can be very off-putting. And again, if that happens on a wider scale in terms of if you have Muslim-majority countries, maybe sometimes they even say, oh yeah, we're practicing some Islamic finance here and there. Uh, but then you see great injustices in those societies uh, on multiple levels, then you're going to be like, well, you guys don't have the answer (laughs) Um, when the reality may be, they may well have the answer, but they're not willing to implement it because their hearts have turned away from the spirit of their religion. Uh, Which is why, you know, saying about the things are always top down and bottom up. It's, it's about the people who are implementing um, the policies as well as the policies themselves. And if you have one without the other, you can make progress, but you can only get so far. So that's why I think we need both a a moral and a cultural revolution in this world. And we also need um, a policy revolution. And I guess your point is, well, let's do, we can't change the whole world. Let's, let's do what we can in our spheres and try and improve our relations with others and try and produce working business models as well and go on from there. Lest we become YouTubers who uh, simply rant and rave and don't actually do anything productive. So uh, I applaud you for that. (laughs) You can find Umar Nasser on his YouTube channel. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you so much, Umar. That was really, really incredible. I learned so much from, um, I don't know what we spoke for over an hour. Um, Yeah, but I learned so much trying to understand, um, you know, your explanation around how our current systems have gone wrong and how businesses can actually take matters into their own hands and start saying no to many of the um, funding mechanisms that are currently pushed towards them, um, whether it's interest-based financing or all, you know, whether it's debt-based financing, but looking more towards shareholding, looking more towards risk sharing, um, or just simply becoming sustainable and profitable so that they can become financially independent. So um, thank you so much. Um, really appreciate having you on the podcast and um, I wish you the very best with Rational Religion. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. We'll be back on the first Wednesday of every month with a new episode. To ensure you don't miss out, please subscribe to Reinvision Business on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or something else. If you've enjoyed our episode, please leave us a five-star review so that others can learn about Reinvision Business. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter with the handle UpEffect for updates on the next episode. Until next month.